Well, like many kids, my kids' education experience was interrupted by the pandemic. For my kids, there was a period of all total about a year between two different academic years where they were doing a lot of their school online. They were meeting with their class virtually. One year they met their teacher virtually and they were doing a lot of learning in a unfamiliar environment. Well, also along with millions of other kids, when my kids went back to school, or back in the classroom, we realized that because their learning experience was a little bit different than expected, that there were some things that along the way they missed that were part of their education experience. And for my youngest, one of those things that he missed based on the grades that he was when the pandemic hit was he missed the mechanics and the precision of handwriting letters. He didn't get that time where he was over and over building that muscle memory, doing the repetitive movements to really make sure that his writing was pristine and precise. And we realized this as he went back to school and his teacher started to encourage him that he needed to make sure that he wrote neatly. And that Feedback was given to me, and so I was talking to him, and I said, you need to take your time. You need to make sure that you write as neatly as you're able. Now, my kid is no dummy, and so he said to me, why? I mean, after all, he's looking at mom and dad, and he knows we're not doing a lot of handwriting letters in our household. We both have careers, and no one is judging us on our penmanship. And he realized that for a lot of months, he was learning how to do something that, in all honesty, will probably prove more useful to him in the long run. He was learning how to type, and he could do that just fine. And his teacher knew what he meant when he wrote in his chicken scratch. So why did it matter that he built the mechanics to make sure those letters were done as they were supposed to? Now, I couldn't argue with his logic. His logic made complete sense. And yet, I told him he still needed to work on his letters because it was important for him to recognize that it mattered to his teacher. So even if it didn't matter to him, even if he was content to live life with the penmanship of a doctor, he needed to try his best to make those letters like they were supposed to be formed. Because in doing so, he honored and showed respect to the authority that God had placed over him in the classroom. And what's true for my son when it comes to his penmanship is true for all of us when it comes to how we respond to the authority that is placed over our lives. And really, how we respond to the heavenly authority that rules over everything. And that is the topic that Paul is going to turn to in our passage. So if you haven't already, please join me in Colossians 3. We're going to pick up in the middle of Paul's discussion, Colossians 3, 22, through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes to us, Bondservants, obey in everything 
those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance, the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He continues, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As you may recall, Paul is in the middle here of talking about how Christians are to interact, how they are to respond to the relationships in their household. And he's tackled several different types of relationships already. He's talked about parents and children, and he's talked about the relationships between spouses. And now he's going to talk about one more relationship that was common for everybody in the church of Colossae, and that was the relationship between bondservants, those who served in the house, and the relationship between the masters, those who were in charge of the house, those who the bondservants served. And he says, whether you're a bondservant or whether you're a master, the point is that it doesn't really matter when it comes to who is in charge. Because ultimately, both the, ma- the Christian bondservant and the Christian master has the same boss. Ultimately, their boss is their savior. And we need to, just like they too did, need to point one, submit to Christ's ultimate authority. Submit to Christ's ultimate authority. Paul wanted the masters and he wanted the bondservants to do the role that they had been given in light of the fact that it was Christ who was in charge. And we may, because we're not familiar, as familiar with these dynamics in the household, we may not realize that Paul here was radically redefining those household relationships. Paul was saying that really, whether you're the person in charge or you're the person that serves, it doesn't really matter because your boss is Christ. Masters, you have a master, and it's not someone that you can see. It is your Savior who died on the cross for your sin. He says to the servants that they are to do their work fearing the Lord. He's reminding them that word Lord is the word master. He's reminding them that the work they do isn't for the person that they see in their household, the person who's in charge. The work that they do is for their master who is in heaven. And he echoes the same things in in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Masters, you are to do your work. You are to do your job knowing that you have a master. You have a Lord in heaven. Whether you are the bondservant or you are the boss, your authority, if you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this passage, we might think, okay, I get how that might apply to me in the 21st century if I go to work. If I'm an employer, if I have people who I am leading and managing and who are my responsibility, well, chapter 4, verse 1 tells me 
I need to make sure I treat them justly and fairly because that is what Christ would want me to do. And if I'm an employee, well, chapter 3, verse 22 tells me, okay, I, how I need to work in light of the fact that it's not my human boss that I'm serving, but it's Jesus. But if we think that this discussion is limited to just those two relationships, we miss the point of the passage entirely. In fact, we miss the whole point of the book of Colossians because Colossians is all about the supremacy of Jesus. It's all about how the fact that regardless of the role, bondservant or master, husband or wife, children or parent, minister or someone who goes to the church, whatever your role is, if you are a Christian, your boss is Jesus Christ. It means that he is the boss in our marriage. He is the boss in our parenting. He is the boss when we interact with our neighbor. It is not our HOA covenants that determine how we respond to our neighbor who keeps violating the neighborhood rules. If we're a Christian, our authority, the rules that we abide by, are the rules that our Savior has given us. When we interact with our kids' little league coach, it's Jesus who gets to define how we respond to that relationship. And when we serve at church, it's not the person whose title says ministry leader that we are responding to. It's Jesus who gets to determine how we serve, how we speak, our attitude, and our actions when it comes to how we do the work that he has called us to do. The point is that Jesus gets to make the rules. Our Savior gets to determine our code of conduct. Our job is to follow the instructions that he has given us which means that how we respond to any circumstance, whatever situation we face, and every person that we encounter in that circumstance is a reflection of our submission to Jesus Christ. He is in control. He is the authority. Any situation that we find ourselves in, he has put us in that situation. He has determined our steps, and he has determined who, we, who our lives will intersect with. And our job is to make sure that in every situation we face, every circumstance, we honor him, that we do what he says without exception and without excuse. It means that when someone is unkind to us, when there's enmity between us and somebody else, that we don't respond with the same unkindness, but just as he commanded us, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. It means that we treat others the way that we want them to treat us, even if they're rude and selfish and inconsiderate, not because they deserve to be treated with kindness and love, but because our Savior has said that is how we should treat them. It means that we honor the earthly authorities that God has placed in our lives. 
It means our local government officials, our state government officials, our national government officials, we respect them. Not because we agree with them always. We probably don't. But because Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. And so we respect the earthly authority because we know as we do so, we're ultimately reflecting our devotion to our heavenly authority. And it means that when someone sins against us, that we don't lash out, we don't retaliate, but we turn the other cheek. We are real, willing to take the loss, even when we, it is unjust for us to do so, because we want to reflect our Savior. Our response to other people is not based on who they are, but on who Jesus is. And as Paul reminded us in a parallel passage in Titus 2, 9 through 10, when he's again addressing bondservants, their job and every Christian's job, regardless of their role, is to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Ladies, our job is to make our Savior look good. Our job is to reflect the love that he has poured out on us. Our job is to make the gospel attractive. Even if we suffer wrong, even if we don't get what we deserve, even if people are cruel and unkind to us, we respond to them with love and grace because our Savior died for us while we were still his enemies. And our job is to submit to the commands that he has given us, to extend the love that he has shown us to those around us. And Paul makes it clear in this passage that this submission to Christ's authority is not on a limited part of our life. There's not just certain areas where we're supposed to submit to our heavenly boss. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, if you were to look at that Greek word that's translated forever, whatever, that Greek word, if you were to study it, what it means is whatever. That's what it means. Anything you do, any task that God has given you, anything that is set before you, which you put your hand to, any word that comes out of your mouth, anything, whatever you do, work heartily unto the Lord and not for men. Or as I put it in point number two, we need to serve Christ in every task. We need to serve Christ in every task. Jesus is Lord over everything. And because of that, every single thing that we do should be done in worship to him. There are no insignificant roles in God's kingdom 
and there are no insignificant tasks. Everything is an opportunity to serve our Savior, to reflect him to those around us. In God's kindness, I was reminded early on in our marriage of what it looks like to serve Christ in every task. I don't know about you, but when it comes to doing laundry, that is a household chore that is near the bottom of my favorite things to do list. I just don't like doing laundry. Now, I have a friend who said, oh, I love doing laundry. I pray for each person as I fold their clothes. And I thought, wow, more power to you. I just don't like it. I've tried, and praying is great. I'm not knocking the praying. But it, you know what the thing is? You know what the thing about laundry is? It is a task that is never done. Have you noticed that? Like, even when you do all the laundry that's in the hamper, you're still wearing clothes which means you have more laundry. It is a task that is never completed. There's no like feeling of, ah, I can cross that off my list. And so for me, laundry is not something that I enjoy. It is not something, honestly, to be very candid, that I find very significant in my life. I think there are better things to do, in my mind, than to fold clothes. And early on in my marriage, you need to also know, and this is true now as well as early on, I am married to perhaps the most chill individual in the history of the world. My husband, he is super low-key. It's a wonderful gift from God. And so when it comes to doing laundry, he, it doesn't bother him much how I do it. He likes to have clothes that are clean. But other than that, like it, it, he's, he's really low-key. So you have this task I don't enjoy, you have a, my husband, who I know, regardless of how I do the laundry, isn't going to respond one way or the other to it. And I remember distinctly, I'm standing at my dryer, and I'm folding one of his shirts. And it, quite frankly, was a mess. It looked like my six-year-old had folded it. It was awful. And I thought, eh, it doesn't matter. And then... In God's kindness, I felt this quiet prick in my soul. And that prick was, what if it was Jesus' shirt? Well, I probably would work a little bit harder at folding it neatly if it was Jesus' shirt. I probably would have a little bit more care and respect. My attitude towards that task would be different because... I would want to do the best that I could in order to honor my Savior. And the truth is, everything that we do, every task is an opportunity to serve Jesus. Now, I need to give a caution here because I am not saying that we all need to become expert t-shirt folders. I still fold my t-shirts, and there are still sometimes wrinkles in those t-shirts. It wasn't about the task. It was about the attitude that I had behind it. Because I wasn't seeing that task as an opportunity to adorn the gospel. I wasn't seeing that task 
as an opportunity to show my devotion to my Savior. I was seeing it as something that no one would ever notice, and therefore it didn't matter. And the conviction is every task is an opportunity to serve Jesus. But if we're going to do this, I have three kind of guidelines that I want us to keep in mind as we impart on this task of serving Jesus. The first is, whatever our assignment is, we need to be grateful for it. We need to be grateful for the task that God has given us. As we serve Jesus, if we approach the work that he's given us with gratitude, which with thanksgiving, we are showing our appreciation to our Lord and Savior. Rather than thinking, I have to fold my husband's shirt. I get to fold my husband's shirt. I get to prepare the 3,000th dinner for my kids. It changes everything about how we approach the responsibilities and the work God has given us. If we are grateful for it, if we think, I get to do this, God has granted me this responsibility and this opportunity to showcase him. And we approach the work with gratitude and thankfulness. Now, if we're going to serve Jesus in every task, it's important that we're thankful, that we're grateful for the work. But the second thing that we need to make sure is we need to make sure that we are also realistic. We need to be realistic. You might notice I'm not still trying to perfect the perfect t-shirt fold. Because God has given me a ton of other responsibilities. There are a ton of things that God has called me to do. But he's also, in his kindness, placed limitations on me. Like you, I only have 24 hours in a day. So I need to be realistic about what I say yes to when it comes to serving Jesus. If I'm saying yes to everything that comes my way, I'm saying yes to, I'm going to plan every birthday party as if it was a Pinterest party. And I'm saying, I'm going to plan every activity at church. I'm going to do it all. And I'm going to say yes to every single thing. I am not being realistic in how I allocate my time, the talents that God has given me. And if I do that, I will not be very effective in serving my Savior. So I need to be grateful for the things I get to do. And I need to be realistic about the things I take on. And if I'm going to serve Christ well in every task, the third thing that I need to do is I need to be wise. I need to be wise. Wisdom is the application of Scripture to our lives. And that means I need to prioritize things in accordance with how God prioritized things. I don't believe that when I stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to say, did you master the t-shirt fold? I think what he's going to say is, did you serve me with joy in your household? I need to be wise 
If I'm investing my time in things that don't really matter, if I'm trying to put on a show and saying, oh no, I'm doing it for Jesus, I may crowd out the more important things for the less important things. For example, Jesus has said, I need to serve in the church. We all, if we're a Christian, we need to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can't say, okay, I'm going to spend all my time crocheting the perfect Afghan, and therefore I'm never going to serve. That is not wisdom. Jesus has said that as his children, he expects us to serve in certain areas in certain ways. We are to serve our family, we are to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are to serve those around us so that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. When it comes to serving Jesus in every task, it doesn't mean that we need to take on every task. It means that every task we take on needs to be done in devotion to our Savior. Every task that we say yes to, we need to view it as an opportunity to make our Savior look good. Every task that Jesus gives us is a task worth doing well because it comes from the one who died on the cross, was raised three days later for your and my sin. Now, Paul tells us that when we're serving Christ, there's a way that we are supposed to serve Christ in every task. He says in verse 23 that we need to work heartily. And he, this reinforces the description that he gives in verse 22 when he says that the service of the bondservants should be done with sincerity of heart. What he's telling us is that we need to be all in. It is our very essence of who we are. We're giving our whole heart, everything that we are, we're giving it over in devotion to our Savior. Our commitment to him should be reflected in our commitment to every task that he gives us, the things that seem significant and the things that don't, the things that are at home and the things that are in public. The things that people take note of when they say, ah, oh, that was really cool that you did that. And those things that those around us have come to expect. Whatever it is, all of it, every day, every hour, every minute, needs to be lived in service to our Savior. And Paul contrasts this wholehearted devotion to serving Jesus with another description, which he says we should not do. He says that we should not serve by way of eye service as people pleasers. He says it shouldn't be done for show. We're not doing it so that we can put on an act and we can make ourselves look good. The point isn't about us. The point is about Jesus. So we don't do it to make ourselves look good, to please other people. We do it to please our Savior. Now there's two sides of this coin. Sometimes we need to recognize that sometimes serving God, doing the tasks 
that Jesus has given us will displease other people, that other people won't like it when we live our lives according to Christ's command. But as Paul writes in Galatians 1.10, we're not seeking the approval of men. We're not seeking the attaboys from those around us. We are seeking the commendation from our Lord. And so we need to be willing to serve Christ in everything, even when we know other people aren't going to like it. But we also need to make sure that we aren't serving Christ in order to get noticed by others. We need to serve with our wholehearted devotion even if no one is witnessing what we do. Even if we never get that encouraging note, even if we never hear from somebody else, oh, I really loved how you did that. Because we're not serving to please others. We are serving an audience of one. We are serving our Lord and our King. So it doesn't matter if anyone else sees it. It doesn't matter if it ever gets noticed. What matters is that we're doing it for a, with a heart that is devoted to Jesus Christ. Paul gives further exhortation when he talks to bond service on how they are supposed to do their work in verses 24 through 25. Colossians 3, 24 through 25 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Ladies, not only is Jesus watching our work, but he has a compensation plan. And we need to, point three, work for the rewards Christ promises. Work for the rewards Christ promises. See, we are to work heartily because we know. We are confident. We are assured. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whether we see a return on that investment in this life we are guaranteed a recompense from our Savior in the life that is to come. In the middle of this passage where it says you are serving the Lord Christ, that has an imperative sense. That is a command. It says you know, Paul's saying you know you will get a reward. So what should you do? Serve Jesus. You know that an inheritance is promised to you. So what should you do? Serve your Savior. It is a command on how we are supposed to respond to the fact that God has guaranteed a reward for the labor that we do for him. This, as in much of this passage, was a radical statement for the life of the Colossian church. Because you see, this statement about the inheritance that is coming is given in the passage where Paul is writing to servants. And you know who got the inheritance in the early church? It wasn't the servants. It wasn't the household help. 
they were promised nothing. The people who got the inheritance were the kids. The inheritance went to the heirs of the master. And Paul is reminding them, it doesn't matter whether you are the master or whether you are the bondservant. If you are a Christian, you are the heir of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And because you are the heir of a Savior, you have an inheritance that is coming to you. Every Christian, every child of God, regardless of their role in this life, can expect a just recompense for the work that they do for the Lord. Now, there's much hope and much encouragement in the fact that we can anticipate, we can confidently anticipate that if we are a child of, a king, of the king, an inheritance has been prepared for us. That the labor that we do for our Lord will be rewarded in the life to come. But ladies, there's also a caution in this passage. Verse 25 says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Just like every Christian, regardless of their role in this life, can look forward to the reward for the labor that they've done for the Lord, every Christian, regardless of their role in this life, will give an account to their Savior. Every Christian at one point has a heavenly evaluation coming. And if we haven't done every task in service to Jesus, if we haven't wholeheartedly devoted ourselves in service to our King, we will suffer loss as a result. Because there is no partiality in the eyes of our Savior. Christ isn't going to be looking at our business cards. Christ is going to be looking at our life and said, how did you use it in service to me? In our passage, that statement that there is no partiality, it's tied to the previous statements where Paul is addressing the bondservants. But in, in Ephesians 6, 9, he gives the same cautions to masters. He's talking to masters in Ephesians 6, 9, and you know what he tells them? There's no partiality when it comes your heavenly evaluation. That if you do not serve Jesus with all that you have and with all that you are in this life, it's not going to matter whether you are the servant or the boss. It's not going to matter whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you came every day to a thankless job. Your role isn't what is going, what Christ is going to look at. Christ is going to look at how you used your time, our gifts, and our talents in service to him. Our role isn't significant. How we serve Christ and his kingdom is what matters. As Susan mentioned, I get the wonderful 
privilege and opportunity to teach students at California Baptist University. And I teach business students, and it may surprise you, but not everybody thinks that the world of business is something that could be done in service to our Savior. And so I end every semester with a devotion to my, my kids, my students. Every semester, I try to remind them that when they go out and they land whatever role that God has given them, that he has prepared for them, that they have an opportunity to use that for kingdom purposes. And I do this by co-oping something that D.L. Moody said when he heard about the news of his granddaughter's birth. D.L. Moody heard the news of his granddaughter's birth and he telegraphed back to her parents and he said, may she be great in the kingdom of heaven. That is the prayer of her grandfather. And I tell my students that my prayer for them is that they are great in the kingdom of heaven. That whether they run a business or whether they are the lowest person on the totem pole, whether they get much success in life or whether they don't, that they would use the roles and the opportunities that God has given them to make a difference for the sake of God's kingdom. That every person they come in contact with, every time they're in a meeting, every time they see someone in the hall, every time they get to give feedback to an employee, that they are adorning the gospel of Christ. My prayer for them is that they have much success, but not in terms of how the world defines it. My prayer is that they have much success because they use their jobs to make a difference for eternity. Ladies, just like my students have an opportunity to use the roles and responsibilities that God has prepared for them to make a difference for the sake of his kingdom, so do you and I. And we need to make sure that we're using every opportunity to do that. And we ensure that we're making a difference for the sake of God's kingdom by submitting to Christ in all things, by saying that he gets to define how we act and the things we say and our attitude and our response to the world around us. We ensure that we make a difference for the sake of the kingdom when we serve him wholeheartedly in all that we do, looking forward to the rewards that he has promised, where one day we'll stand before our Savior and hopefully hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that regardless of our role, regardless of our responsibilities, regardless of the position that you've placed us in, that we can make a difference for the sake of your kingdom, that we have the opportunity to adorn the gospel of our Savior 
Father, may we use those opportunities well. And Father, I ask that as we break up into our small groups, Lord, that you would help us. If there's any area, Father, where we are not serving our Savior with our whole heart, I ask that you would help reveal that to us and that we would encourage and hold each other accountable that in the task that you have given us, that we would increasingly reflect who our Savior is. Father, I ask that you would help us to submit to our Lord in all things, that we would in all things submit to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and that you would help us to be women who make the most of every opportunity, working not to please others, but to please our Savior in heaven. Father, may we be encouraged, may we be convicted, may our lives increasingly reflect your Son until the day that you call us home. This is his name that we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.